For the scripture reading this evening, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Luke 13, 1 through 9, and I invite you also to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Hear now the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, Let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated, and let us go to the Lord in prayer as we enter into this time. Our God and Father in heaven, we do thank you for every word that proceeds from your mouth, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the words of Christ recorded here in the Gospels. And we ask that those words would speak with a force to us tonight, uh, that those words would awaken us, they would uh, alert us to our lost condition without Christ, and also to remind us of our safe condition in Christ. We pray that you would give us an understanding by the illumination of your spirit, and we ask this in his name, in the name of Christ we pray, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I I wrote this message more or less about a week ago on Friday, last week, I was trying to get ahead, and I did not realize at the time the ways in which this message would speak to us with a certain relevance and force. Of course, there's a sense in which I think in trials that all of the Word of God becomes alive to us to some degree or another. Certainly, certain passages speak to us, but all of God's Word is just speaking with life force to us in our time of need. And this passage on Jesus teaching us about repentance is very important for us. It, it deals with certain misconceptions that are common amongst people, misconceptions about why bad things happen to people, and reminds us of what's central in such a consideration. You see something bad happen, you see some tragedy, you see some difficulty somebody goes through, and you think, Why did this happen to them? Well, our brother Pastor Kevin already said there's a billion reasons, and we don't go into trying to figure all of that out. But we do know that one of the things our Lord Jesus wanted to remind his listeners of is that they needed to repent. As they considered the reality of eternal judgment, the fact that all of us will one day die and go to the judgment seat of God, we need to repent, or we will perish as well. 
There have been times in history, of uh, recent history, where people would be brought to a degree of sobriety about difficulty and tragedy. You think about something like a nationwide crisis. You ma- remember September 11th, 2001, uh, when the planes hit the World Trade Centers, killing thousands of people. What was the response to that? Well, it seemed that the next Sunday the churches were fuller than previous Sundays as people sought answers to these things. I suspect that some came for a few weeks and never returned again. I suspect that some stayed. Thanks be to God, perhaps. There's probably some of that that happened. And there's people asking questions, asking hard questions at a time like that. They're asking, why did this happen? Where was God when this happened? If God is all-powerful, why didn't he stop this from happening? There's those kinds of common questions, but I also suspect that some were perhaps awakened to the eternal condition of their souls and the reality of death, the reality of judgment. And when it comes to tragedies, human nature is such that people can respond to it in all different kinds of wrong ways. We can, uh, we can blame God, that's one common approach that people take. We can question God's goodness. Sometimes people have these very pagan notions of what happens in a fatalistic kind of way. They, sometimes they talk about karma, this idea that karma is, is what affects things. And if you have bad karma, bad things will happen to you. But if you have good karma, good things will happen to you, right? This is this fallacy that is more or less underlying what some of these people were thinking in this passage. And it's important in assessing tragedies and, and difficulties and hardships that people go through to assess them rightly. And there are a lot of true things that we can consider in coming to any particular difficulty or tragedy, but what Jesus focused on in this passage was repentance. It's not the only thing you can draw from a tragedy, but the focus for his listeners. And of course, our Lord Jesus, he peers into the heart. He knows exactly what people need to hear at the right time. We wish we could do that the way he does. He knows what needs to be said. He knows their heart in talking about this tragedy about Pilate and the Galileans and all of this. He knows what they're thinking. He knows the reasons of their hearts that they're thinking, these, these people must have been really bad sinners for such a thing to happen to them. And he wants them to remember that they themselves need to repent. This follows up from the end of chapter 12, which was about discerning the times, that there was a judgment that was soon to come upon the people of God, particularly with AD 70, but there were already other kinds of judgments that were unfolding upon them. And they needed to be awakened to this situation that they were in, that the the king had come and he was calling the people of God to repentance. Now, as we go into this passage, we'll look first at these, their, these two tragedies and their interpretations, the right interpretations of them, and then we will go on to the parable that Jesus tells. So let's read verses 1 through 3 again. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Apparently this event that had happened with the Galileans and Pilate and the sacrifices, it must have been common knowledge. It was news on the street in Jerusalem. We don't know how long ago it had happened since this time, but people would talk about this horrific event. And we don't know much about this event. Uh, Luke is the only historian that records it for us. 
we do know other horrible things about Pilate, which we can talk about, but think about this event for a moment, okay? You have the Galileans presumably coming to Jerusalem, and they are offering sacrifices, And in the midst of that, Pilate does some horrific thing. He kills these Galileans. They're slain, and then this terrible sacrilege of the mixing of human blood and animal blood happens in the midst of these sacrifices. This is a horrible thing. If we were to liken it to something in the modern day, one commentator tried to explain it this way, it would be as if terrorists came into a church and shot worshipers as they were partaking of communion and then mixed their blood with the communion. It's, that's, that's the horrible sacrilege of what was taking place. It was an utter brutality. It was, it was an abomination. It was a terrible evil. We know other things about Pilate's brutality. Uh, there was, on one occasion, Josephus records that Pilate had used a temple tax to build an aqueduct into Jerusalem. So he was raising money through the proceeds from the temple. He was building this aqueduct that would carry water into Jerusalem. And many of the Jews objected to this use of the temple funds for this building project, and they protested. There was tens of thousands on the streets, according to Josephus. And Pilate was so brutal, in order to stop the protest, he planted men throughout the crowd with daggers in order to slaughter the protesters. There's another occasion where he attacked the the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. He sent his men in to kill them in the midst of their attempting to worship in that context. Perhaps whenever he saw a political threat, like the Galileans in this passage, he was taking action to to harm them. Perhaps the Galileans were known for their uh, zealot-like ways, desiring freedom. We don't know for sure what it was that Pilate was after. And so if we get a sense of the evil of this event, and people are talking about it, it's news on the street, and, and when something horrific happens, people can talk about it in a very detached kind of way, because it didn't happen to them. So they, they can talk about it just over, uh, you know, over a coffee, like some people would in the modern day, and like, yeah, did you hear what happened to, to so-and-so? Did you hear what happened on the news in that city? What a horrible thing that was. And we could be detached like that, And we could even think wrongly, as the people seem to be thinking here, that maybe it was because they were really bad people that that happened. Maybe they deserved what took place. And what Jesus wants us to consider at this point, he's he's wanting us to remember we all deserve something like this. We are all deserving of the eternal judgment of God. Pilate slaughtering a few people at the sacrifice is nothing compared to the eternal judgment of God. And so to be talking about this horrific, scary, awful thing in a detached way of all these things that happen to these people and just unmoved by it or comparing yourself to it is the wrong response. It's this false theology that says bad things happen to bad bad people and worse things happen to worse people. And you could go on from there. Worser things happen to worser people or more evil people. And it's, it's utterly simplistic. It's, not, it's nonsense according to the scriptures. Of course, the, the theology of Job's miserable comforters was more or less along those lines. They, they believed that for Job, the only conceivable reason that such horrible things could have happened to him was that there was some particular sin in his life that he needed to repent of or maybe a series of sins. And while it was true, of course, that Job was a sinner, 
It was not, therefore, true that the particular trials in his life were a result of some particular sin or list of sins. It was the same wrong theology of John 9. The disciples, they come to the blind man, they say, there are only two options, Jesus, and which one is it? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And Jesus says, neither. You have the wrong assumption. You have the wrong theology. You have the wrong perspective on this. It was for the glory of God to be shown. The glory of God was more important than somebody deserving this or that or not deserving this or that. It was for God's purposes that this man had been born blind. And so the purposes of God are so far above these simplistic dichotomies that people want to choose between, these simplistic conclusions and assumptions that people make. Rather than trying to draw simplistic conclusions about how evil things happen to particularly evil people or comparing people's evils, we need to respond with a sober consideration of our own souls. When we see something bad happen or, or hard happen or some evil befall somebody, and I mean a natural evil like a tragedy, somebody dies in a car accident, we aren't to think there were sinners. We are to remember that our lives are short. We are to remember that all of us are called to faith in Christ, repentance towards God. We are to remember the reality of our own condition. Now, in order to make this point, Jesus not only talks about the thing that the crowds had brought up about Pilate and the Galileans, now in verse 4 through 5, Jesus mentions an event, a different event. And in verse 14, it says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus brings up another event, and one of the differences about this event was that it wasn't a human actor involved. You know, with Pilate, it was clear you have this evil guy doing evil things, hurting people. But when the Tower of Siloam fell, there was, there was no obvious human cause. Maybe there was an engineering defect, and you could try to trace that out, but it was an accident. Nobody had caused the Tower of Siloam to fall, as far as we know. There were these 18 people that happened to be, we would say, some people would say, in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that's not the case. They were where God had them at that time. And so whether it is a a human-caused evil or whether it is a providential accident, accident in the human sense of the word, either way, it it is the acting and the providence of God over all of these things, and it is a call to remind us that we need to repent. We've seen things like this happen. On June 24th, 2021, a 12-story condominium building named Chaplain Towers South fell. At 1.22 a.m., killing, we believe, 98 people. There's few events in recent history that are so much like the Tower of Siloam falling. I mean, this was a tower. It fell. There were all these people. There was people that went to bed that night that were sleeping when this tower fell. No one saw this coming. 
No one knew such a thing would happen when they went to bed. And in the months that followed, if you followed the news stories, of course, there were different things. And people were praying for uh, survivors and the recovery efforts, and it was good to pray for that. We, we do not want to see the loss of human life. But one of the things that you would see over and over again was the analysis, the analysis of why did this happen. And there's the engineering questions and who's to blame and who do we go after for this and what are the insurance payouts going to be and, and how can we stop this from ever happening again. And of course, all those questions could be pursued in their own right way. We should consider good engineering. That would be a good application of the Sixth Commandment to preserve life. We want to build buildings well. But I think in those moments, brothers and sisters, we are called to consider the shortness of our lives, the reality of eternity, the necessity of faith in Christ, and the necessity of repentance towards God. Ecclesiastes 9.12 says this, For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, Like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. Man does not know his time, brothers and sisters. And there's an urgency then to this message. There's an urgency in light of eternity, the shortness of life, the length of eternity, which it's not even almost appropriate to talk about the length of eternity. It's it's infinite. There's an urgency to repentance, our Lord Jesus teaches us. He, he's saying there was this current generation. They'd, they'd talk about all these tragedies. They'd make comparisons about who was worse and why they deserved it. And, and Jesus is saying you need to discern the times. You need to remember this call that you have been given, not just by me, but John the Baptist had been doing it for some time, telling people to repent. He says the axe is laid to the root of the tree. And there was urgency. He says it's going to come, that Jesus is going to come. He's going to come with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he will burn with an unquenchable fire. He will divide the wheat and the chaff. And there are some who who shrug off the exhortations of God's word. They don't sense the urgency. As far as they can tell, they have many days ahead. There's no rush to turn to God. It's nothing to do right now in terms of repentance, turning to Christ, believing in him. There can be this spiritual lethargy, this deadness among many who hear the word of God. It's just not taken seriously. The urgency is not there. And perhaps you remember the old evangelism explosion question that was part of that evangelism program that D. James Kennedy put together. It was very simple, and I'm paraphrasing it, if I can remember it correctly. If you were to die today and find yourself standing before the judgment seat of God, what would you say to him as to why he should let you into heaven? That was, I I believe, the way it was presented. If you were to die today, you stand before the judge of the living and the dead, and you say to him, or if he asks you, it may not be the question that's asked of you, but the, the point is, is right. Will you be eternally with God? Will you be in his presence? Will you be redeemed from your sins through Jesus Christ? What will you say on that day? Can you say that you have turned to Jesus Christ? You have put your faith in him? Can you say that you have repented of your sins before God and and you have put your hope in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you repented of your wicked thoughts and your wicked actions, asking that God would pardon you, that he would cleanse you, that he would renew you? 
Now, one of the things that our Lord teaches is not only the urgency of repentance, but the necessity of repentance. That repentance is not an option. It is not an add-on to the Christian life. It is not a booster, so to speak, like you get faith, and then repentance is optional. Do that in 20 years or something. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We are saved by faith in Christ alone, but that saving faith which looks to Christ is always necessarily accompanied with repentance. We've gone through some of these passages back when we were looking at John the Baptist and his preaching of repentance, and I want to review a few of them with you. Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he's talking about what was his message. What did he deliver to them over all those years that he was with them? Acts 20, verse 20 through 21. He says, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. This was his message. It wasn't either or. It wasn't just one of them. It was faith and repentance. In Luke chapter 24, in the same gospel, verse 46 through 47, Jesus commissioning his disciples, tells them what they are going to proclaim among the nations. Luke 24, verse 46. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So what are the implications of the death and resurrection of Christ? Well, what is it accomplished? He says, I'm go- you're going to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to the whole world. How critical then, how central then is repentance for the preaching of, of the gospel? Our confession of faith has some valuable words about the necessity of repentance. This is in the Westminster Confession, chapter 15, verse 3. It says, although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. It's a a difficult statement in some ways to fully understand, but what it's saying is repentance is not satisfaction for sin. It is not our act of repentance that merits God's favor for us. We don't pay for our sins. Jesus has paid the debt for our sins. And it says that what what pardons us is faith looking to Christ. That's how Abraham became righteous. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't do anything. He didn't even repent in Genesis 15. He looked to the promises of God. And so we also, we look to Christ And we are pardoned by him. Then why is repentance necessary? Why is it an absolute necessity that must accompany saving faith? Well, there's a couple ways to answer this, but let us remember what Jesus came to do. Matthew 1 verse 21 says, Jesus, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What does it mean to be saved from your sins? We think, of course, about the condemnation that comes from sin. We think about the guilt that we 
have because of our sins. And yes, Jesus came to deliver us from the guilt and the condemnation of our sins. But what if he did that, but just left us in the terrible, destructive bondage of sin? Would that be salvation? Jesus came to save us from all of that. He came to save us from every aspect in which sin affects us. The guilt, the condemnation, the bondage, the destruction, the corruption, all of it he came to save us from. And so repentance is this essential grace that God gives us. He has to grant us faith. He has to grant us repentance. And when he grants us repentance, our minds begin to change. We begin to think differently about things. We begin to realize sin is awful. We begin to realize that Jesus is amazing. And we begin to turn away from sin and turn towards God and walk in that new direction. And so if Jesus is going to save us from our sins, then he will not only give us this gift of faith, but he will give us this gift of repentance. He will enable us to think differently. He will enable and renew our wills to walk differently as well. And no longer will we be in love with sin and enslaved to it. We will hate it, and we will increasingly hate it. And so as we go into the parable now, we're going to see another important aspect of this, that when Jesus calls the people of that day and calls us to repent, he is looking for fruit. That's what the parable focuses on. And so let's look at Luke 13, 6 through 9. He also spoke to this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. This is important for us because it teaches us that repentance, to be true repentance, will have fruits of repentance. It is important that we distinguish repentance from the fruits of repentance. They are not the same thing. The scriptures distinguish them. But true repentance will bring forth fruit. It might be like one of those little poor Colorado trees that barely can get fruit. But if it's alive, it will bear some fruit. Or it will be just a giant tree. It will be fruit falling off of it. And nevertheless, there's going to be life. Now, Isaiah 5 is an important passage for us in understanding this. The scriptures in the Old Testament often applied the language of a vineyard or a garden to God's people. Uh, Psalm 80 is one such example, how God had brought them out of Egypt and he had planted them and now the nations were running through it. There was this boar running through the vineyard destroying God's, God's people and, and it's a lament. Now, in Isaiah 5, it speaks about how God had planted this beautiful vineyard and he expected fruit that was his expectation he planted it for that reason isaiah 5 1 through 2 it says my well beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill it was good soil notice he dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine he built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it so he expected it to bring forth good grapes but it brought forth wild grapes the kind of grapes you do not want to eat and you do not want to make wine out of. 
the Lord was disappointed with the fruit coming from his vineyard. He had worked hard to plant his people. He had brought them out of Egypt. He'd put them in the promised land. He'd given them this amazing promises, this amazing place. And he's saying, okay, now I want a glorious people. I want a holy people. I want fruit coming from this people. And it didn't happen at times. Verse 5 of Isaiah 5, it says, And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. What a remarkable thing that the vineyard God would plant, he will destroy to some degree. Of course, to redeem it, to, to purge it. But that's what he's threatening here to do with his vineyard. And this picture, we have to remember, is a is a picture of the corporate people of God. It's applied later to the children of Judah and Israel. And and by extension to us as the church, this applies to us, brothers and sisters. We are the vineyard that God has planted. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants fruit from us. Now what we see also in this passage is the patience of God. Yes, there is an urgency. Yes, there is a time limitation. But we do see patience because in the parable, the man, he comes and and the owner says, I'm not wasting the space anymore. This is good soil. There's this dead plant here. I'm getting this out of here. We're going to put something in there that will live. And then the one that's tending to it says, no, we're going, let's, can we wait one more year? I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to prepare it. And we're going to see if we get some fruit from it this year. Now, God is a gracious God. He is a patient God to his people. But there is a window of time, this parable teaches us as well. Though he is patient, there is a limited window of time. Have you ever seen an hourglass? Kids, have you seen an hourglass before? You have the the dust or whatever particular sand is used, perhaps, and and people used to actually use this to, to see the duration of time. And, and they would create this hourglass and the, the pieces would fall through the hourglass at a uniform rate so that you could determine at, at the point at which it's done that maybe 30 minutes or an hour or something had elapsed once the hourglass had run out. Now as you think about that hourglass, remember that your life has a limited number of days. God has determined, he has appointed the number of each of our days. We don't know how long it is. There is a day in which the hourglass runs out. The parable sets forth that there was going to come a time where if it did not bear the fruit, and I believe the fruits of repentance, it would be removed from the the ground at that point. It would be a, a kind of judgment then upon the plant. And so as we think about repentance, it is not for us to measure repentance in any quantitative way. It is not for us to compare repentances. It is for us to consider our hearts. It is for us to ask the question, am I bearing fruits in keeping with repentance? That's what John the Baptist was preaching to the people of his day. He says, bear fruits that are in accord, that are consistent with repentance. And at times, as we consider that question, we may be discouraged. At times, we may see that maybe in this area, I haven't really repented. I haven't borne fruits of repentance in this or that area. God reveals these things to us graciously and mercifully in his timing. 
But what this parable does set forth for us very honestly is that there needs to be fruit. I want to read the language of the larger catechism that defines for us saving repentance, or it says repentance unto life, the kind of repentance that's real. It says repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sin as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. It's a helpful definition, and it sets forth for us. We need the saving grace of this gift of repentance. God has got to grant it, and so we pray for it, for, for us, for others, And then when it comes by the Spirit and the Word of God, what's going to happen is a new sight and a new sense will develop and suddenly people are going to think the person who's granted this gift will realize I am in great danger. And not only am I in danger, but this is a horrible, horrible thing that my sin is. And now I see the mercy of God in Christ. And now I take hold of this promise that if I am penitent, if I come to Christ, I will be forgiven all my sins. And now I'm going to live a new life. I'm going to endeavor, I'm going to make it my endeavor every single day to walk in new obedience. This is what repentance unto life is, brothers and sisters. This is not the Esau repentance. Esau cried, but that wasn't repentance for you. True repentance for Esau. It was a, a, a worldly sorrow that led to death. It was not just saying sorry. It involved a change in the heart of a sinner affected by the Holy Spirit and the word of God, the sinner now sees the danger and turns away from it. And so when that repentance is real and manifest, you will begin to see the fruits of new obedience. And so this calls for us, brothers and sisters, to consider our hearts in light of Jesus' call. Not only he says, repent, but then he he gives us a picture. He says, there's going to be fruits of this repentance coming forth. We're going to see something in some measure. And so it's important for us to consider that as we look at our our lives, as we think about the the challenges of sin and temptation that we face. It's one thing to continually say sorry uh, for our ungodly behavior. It's another thing to forsake it. We can say that we are sorry for our angry words or actions, but we have to forsake it. We can claim to hate our sins of covetousness and lust or, or bitterness But do we find ourselves just as committed to those idols three or four years later? The parable gave three years plus one. And I don't take that as some divine timetable for every situation, but what I draw from it is that there is a point at which the time elapses. And so, brothers and sisters, we we need to consider these words soberly this evening. Verse 8 and 9, he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Now, there's a patience involved. Now, imagine you're dealing with a sinner, and we're all sinners, so we're always dealing with each other. You're dealing with a sinner it's very difficult for you to deal with. 
Would you have given up on the fig tree after three years? I mean, if you were the gardener, you have three years of wasting ground. Would you just pluck it out? Would you have done it after the first year? This is also indicative of the patience of God. That there was another year given. But consider again the mercy of God. That God is long-suffering. And the Jews were facing a judgment soon to come. But there may have been ways in which God lengthened that. And, and for even individual people, he lengthened that time. So I'm going to give you more time to repent. Second Peter 3.9. This is Peter writing to the people of God. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. And he is writing to the people of God when he writes us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And see, God is waiting, he's patient, because he's saying, I'm going to bring all those to repentance that I grant the gift of repentance to. It's going to happen. I am long-suffering until that project is done. And so I think one application, we we of course need to apply it to our own hearts. We consider the call to repentance, but we also consider the patience and the mercy of God in this. And we consider, even as we deal with other sinners in our lives, uh, rather than throwing up our hands and giving up after one month of trying to help someone, and uh, concluding, I give up, I will not help this person anymore, they won't repent. Well, This parable, there was three years and then another. But certainly we are to deal urgently with our own souls. Has God been gracious to dig around and fertilize us as a church? You remember how the parable goes. There's going to be this fertilization process. The the tenant that's taking care of things says, wait, give it one more year, I'm going to fertilize, I'm going to try to make this a better situation. And think of that almost as the mercy of God to bring us the word, to give us more time, to teach us and saying, I'm going to give them more time. But what if after that other year passes, we have not repented? What the parable plainly says is eventually the fig tree is removed. This could be applied corporately. There's the lampstand of the church. Will it be removed? There's the individual application. Will we be removed? There's an urgency to this as we consider it, brothers and sisters. That We're, we're called out of this spiritual lethargy to say, no, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ has called me to repentance. Have I repented? We are exhorted to repent because God is good. How merciful he is to give us opportunities for repentance. This is his heart's desire. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, our our God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. So brothers and sisters, will, will we turn and live? Will each of us turn away from our life of sin and self to the life of fellowship with God, which is so much better? than the life of sin? Will we seek God's mercy demonstrably revealed in Jesus Christ, displayed for us in the cross and in the empty tomb? And I read from Psalm 145, I think it was maybe just, a, I think it was last, the previous Tuesday, we were with the brothers, and I, I came upon this 
verse in Psalm 145, verse 18, and I've been thinking about it. It says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And the application I would make from this verse, brothers and sisters, is that if you call upon the Lord in truth, he is near to you. He will respond. There are sometimes people that call and it's not in truth. It's not in sincerity of heart. There's not a faith. There isn't a repentance. But if we call upon the living God in faith and in repentance, he will be near to us. He will draw near to us. And he will apply the salvation of Jesus Christ to us. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of Christ recorded for our instruction. We also thank you that you are good to us, that you warn us of the dangers and consequences of our sins, and we thank you that your warnings are designed to awaken us to flee from the wrath to come and to embrace your free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that each of us in this room would live lives of faith and repentance. Enable us to see our sin, to hate our sin, and to forsake it. And all along that we would be looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who is our righteousness. So we pray, Lord, that that salvation of Christ in all of its fullness would come to us, and that we as a church would be a fruitful vineyard by your glory, for your glory and by your work in us. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.